Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke 4. Why Christ came. We're coming into a, a round of messages that will be a little bit more encouraging, uh, more contemplative on the uh, concepts of grace and mercy. I had initially in my pre, uh, in my title here, Why Christ Came the First Time. But then I thought, well, He hasn't come again yet. So the fact that it says, Why Christ Came... Uh, should give us enough to understand it was his first advent. Certainly his second coming uh, has an entirely different purpose, doesn't it, than his first. We understand that. He first comes as the Lamb of God. Uh, the second time he's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. First time he comes to save. The second time he comes to judge. We're now 30 years into the life of Jesus Christ. Last week we, last two weeks we spent our time considering the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, that which in many ways initiated his ministry as he was tempted in all points like as we and yet without sin. We considered those three temptations that Satan brought before Christ, how he handled them with scripture, resisting the devil, the devil fled from him. We've heard of God's purposes through John for Jesus. Gabriel announced John's purpose, the, the Messiah's purpose. God's hand of sovereign power overshadowed Christ's birth. We've listened to the testimony of the wise men the wom- and women who, who testified of the unique ministry of Jesus Christ. We heard the testimony of John himself of Christ. And today we get to hear Jesus himself give his purpose. Everybody else has testified of Christ. Christ has not yet, on the record, testified of Himself. Today He's going to do that. But not only just His purpose will we see today, but also we'll be given a layer of insight into how the Jews will respond to His coming and why indeed there must be a second coming at a future date. This message is going to be broken up into two parts. Today we'll exposit the passage and talk about what the passage actually says. Next week, in our morning service, we're going to consider a a theological truth about how to interpret prophecy in Scripture based upon what we have studied today. I trust it will be a help to you and a blessing. Luke 4, you see there we'll be covering verses 14 through 30. And let's begin in verse 14. The Bible tells us in verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went around, uh, went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. So Jesus had been being tempted in the wilderness. Remember, he went directly from being baptized in the wilderness to being tempted in the wilderness. And now that his temptation is over, the devil has fled from him. The devil left him for a time. Jesus now returns, and the scriptures tell us that he went in the Spirit into Galilee, and the regions round about. As we look at Galilee, it's the northern region of Israel. It's the place where Jesus would spend the majority of his ministry. You see Galilee, I didn't circle it here, but you see it up there on the map. And Galilee was the place where he spent the majority of his time. He would, of course, go down into Judea, to Jerusalem for the feasts and such. But in Judea, he was in a lot of danger. The Sanhedrin, the... Pharisees, the Sadducees, 
When he went into Judea, he tended to get run out pretty quickly. Spent most of his time and most of his ministry in Galilee. And the scriptures tell us that his fame went throughout all the region. This fame would have been helped by the first of miracles. We're not preaching that miracle. That miracle is only found in the book of John. John 2.11 calls it the beginning of miracles, that which we call the marriage of Cana. There, Jesus Christ began his miracle-working ministry. And he, as he began, his fame would have no doubt spread. So his fame is spreading. We know that those things have already happened. And this is at some point after at least that first miracle and um, the, the interaction there in the marriage of, of Cana in Galilee. He's becoming renowned. People are talking about this one, this one who John called the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And as we continue in verses 15 and 16, we read this, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, Jesus begins his ministry proper by going from synagogue to synagogue and teaching in those synagogues. As a brief side note, the synagogues came about during the 70 years of captivity. If you recall back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel was writing by the river Kibar as he was in captivity Jeremiah was in Jerusalem while many others were in captivity. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. And during that time, uh, a captivity which began in 605 B.C., during that time, those during those 70 years, uh, the Jews had no temple. Nebuchadnezzar in uh, 586 B.C. destroyed that temple. And so that temple was done. That temple was gone. They had no temple, and the temple had always served as the exclusive and central place of Jewish worship by God's design. Other than when they went into paganism and they created high places, the temple was the place where God said, you come here to worship the tabernacle uh, before the temple. Jewish leaders had formalized Jewish prayer at this point. They'd made it into effectively a liturgy, but there was no place in Babylon for the Jews to meet and to worship. As we think about Babylon, when the Jews went to Babylon, they didn't intersperse among the people. They had a section of the city that was the Jewish section. And this would continue all the way into the Persian Empire. And you can see this um, quite clearly in the book of Esther, right? That there was kind of a Jewish area of town. Um, that There was a, a Jewish segment of these various capitals, whether you're talking about Shushan and Esther, whether you're talking about Babylon, uh, they had kind of a Jewish quarter uh, in the same way that you can see in many cities today where they have a French quarter or a, uh, a different nationalities, Chinatown, right? Those sorts of things. And so they had Jewish areas and they wanted to be able to meet and worship the Lord together. And so these synagogues were designed to meet that purpose. In an age when there was no temple, the synagogues were created for a scattered nation to worship the Lord in the place where they were. Uh, there would be a new tem- temple built, and of course at this time we know there is a temple in Jerusalem following the captivity. However, the synagogue never really fell away. Uh, the Jews had still, by and large, uh, been scattered. Many of the Jews never came back from Babylon, never came back from Shushan. Uh, other Jews have now scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so wherever they went, they built 
synagogues, and that would include the regions of Galilee, uh, in Samaria, to a lesser extent, um, because they had their own kind of worship system. But, and then all throughout Syria and Rome and, and in the regions that were everywhere, the Persians, the Greeks and everything, synagogues were built as the Jews spread throughout. And the text tells us that Jesus went from synagogue to synagogue, likely town to town, Capernaum and Cana and Nazareth, teaching in these synagogues. And as he did so, his fame spread, causing men, the scriptures tell us in verse 15, to glorify him. He was glorified of all. His words, his teachings were glorified of all. Now, there's little doubt that just as when he was 12 years old, Jesus had great wisdom and understanding of the law. And so, when he went from place to place, when he was 12 years old, he sat before the lawyers and the doctors and they marveled at his wisdom. Imagine now, his wisdom. It must have been truly fantastic to listen to him expound the scriptures. One can only think of what it must have been like to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him talk about the law of God. So Jesus then comes to Nazareth, and it would seem to be the first time he teaches in the synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth being the city where Jesus was raised. He was a Nazarene. With the exception of those couple of years, maybe two to three years where he was in Egypt, he lived in Nazareth. So everyone would have known him. Everyone he would meet in the synagogue on the Sabbath day would have understood who he was, would have known his history, would have probably seen him from a young age. And everyone met together in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus joined them, as was his custom. At age 5, the boy was admitted into the synagogue. At age 13, it was a part of a legal societal expectation that the son go to the synagogue. So Jesus likely would have been in that synagogue every Sabbath day from age 13, presumably up till age 30. The people knew him very, very well, but now he's famous. Now he is a teacher. Now he is being recognized. Now it would have been customary to ask traveling teachers to have an opportunity to read and expound upon a passage in the Torah. If Jesus' fame spread abroad, he certainly would have qualified to read the scriptures in the, in the synagogue. Uh, he was a hometown boy as well. A man in whom the whole of the synagogue would have, would have wanted to hear him. It's kind of like uh, when, if you've got a young man in the church, and he's grown up in the church, and everyone has known him from a young age, and he wants to get into the ministry. It's a real honor the first time everyone gets to see him stand up behind the pulpit and preach. It's an exciting thing to see a young man grow up and then get behind that pulpit and preach. May have been that sort of excitement around Jesus coming back to the synagogue as a, as a rabbi and, and, and reading and teaching. Most likely many of them were well aware of, his, of the claims surrounding his messiahship from John. To this point, as he was becoming more renowned, it's perhaps likely that he was showing his wisdom and knowledge, but not really asserting all of his power. He's done a few miracles. He did Cana of Galilee at least, but not necessarily really opening up yet. And the text tells us that he stood up to do a reading. Verse 17. There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Esaias. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And then we'll, we'll talk about that more in a moment. The book of the prophet Esaias would have been the book of Isaiah. So Esaias is Isaiah. Uh, it seems by implication that it was a leader in the synagogue who would have chosen the passage to read and uh, would have given Jesus the, at least the scroll of Isaiah. Perhaps it was that Jesus requested it himself 
We don't really know. We do know, however, that the particular passage that Jesus went to uh, was calculated. And where he ended up is what we would call Isaiah 61. Now, they wrote in scrolls. So they didn't necessarily have the same breaks that we have up, that we have today. Uh, the chapter breaks, the verse numbers, that stuff is not inspired by God. That's not in the originals implicitly. Uh, so he finds the place where we call Isaiah 61. And before we go there and we read Isaiah 61, we'll continue just a little bit more in the text of Luke, where we read this in verses 18 and 19. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to teach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, Jesus reads this. And what he's reading is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and the second half of, or excuse me, the first half, not the second half. He didn't skip. The, the first, uh, all of, all of verse one and then the first half of verse two. In Isaiah 61, one and two, we read this, and this is just the first half of two. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to op- and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It is significant that Jesus stopped there. Because if you notice in our King James, there's a comma. And if we go back one slide, there's a period because that's where Jesus stopped. But in Isaiah, as the King James translated it, there's a comma because the thought is not over. There's more to it. And we'll talk particularly focusing in next week on why it is Jesus stopped there and didn't move on. The content is clearly messianic prophecy. Without question messianic prophecy. Revealing that the Spirit of God will rest upon Messiah and that He will be anointed. That is the word, by the way. The word anointed there is the Christ or the Messiah. That he will be anointed to preach the gospel. This will be God's call upon him. And the audience unto whom he was sent is also given. The meek. That's what verse 18 of your passage there in Luke calls the poor. Showing us that when we see the poor in Luke, it's not speaking of the economically poor, but rather the spiritually poor. What Jesus would say in Matthew 5 Blessed are the poor in spirit. So he sent to the meek, to the brokenhearted, to the captive, sent to heal, to bind the bruised. He's called to give hope to those meek men. He's called to heal those brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to those who are in captivity. To recover the sight of the blind and then to liberate the bruised. And take note of that final phrase as well. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is a direct reference to the promise of the kingdom. And probably the most direct statement we have by which we understand that this is what Jesus was doing here. The Messiah was going to come to do all of these things. To heal 
the brokenhearted and the lame and the weak and the bruised, and to proclaim to them as he's healing the kingdom. It's exactly what we talked about in Sunday school this morning for those who were here. That when Jesus Christ commissioned his twelve to go, he commissioned them to go in Luke 9 and do the very thing that he's doing here and that Messiah was prophesied to do. To heal the sick and to preach the kingdom of God. To heal and to preach. And this ought to confirm for us the point of John's ministry as well, right? John was coming to call men to repentance. To call men to see their spiritual need. He came to position men's heart to see their sinfulness so that Christ could heal them. And this is why humility is so important to the process. This is why we must always see ourselves in light of God's word. Only those who see themselves as God sees them will be positioned to receive the solutions that God offers. He came to heal who? The poor in spirit. Those who saw themselves as needy. He came to take the brokenhearted and to bind them. He came to take those who saw themselves as in captivity and to liberate them. If a man is sitting in a dungeon in chains and you come in there and say, hey, I've come to free you. And he says, well, I'm, I'm not captive. I, I don't. You can't free a man that doesn't know he's captive. You can undo the chains, but he's not going to leave if he doesn't think he's got, if he's in captivity. You can try to save a drowning man, but if you throw out a life preserver and you throw out a life vest and, and you do all of these things to give him something to hang on to, if he doesn't think he's drowning, he's not going to grab onto the solution. He's not going to grab onto the, the life preserver if he doesn't think he has a problem. He won't seek a solution. So Messiah is going to come to rescue those who find themselves in a place of need. Now Jesus reads this very brief portion of Scripture, stopping halfway through what we would call verse 2, literally halfway through a thought. And then he continues in verse 20. And he closed the book. That's it. And of course that would be a scroll. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. You can imagine how that strange that might have been. If you could just kind of picture your long-winded preacher getting up here, opening up the scripture saying, Jesus wept. And then just sitting in silence, everyone saying, well, aren't you going to say something? What about it? And Jesus just sat. All eyes were fastened on him. What, what, what's going on here? He read so little. Just a tiny little chunk. He didn't read a long passage. He didn't even finish the thought. He stopped halfway through a thought. What's going on here? Verse 21. And as everyone was looking at him, he began to say unto them, This day... Is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? All he wanted to tell them on this day in the synagogue is this. All that stuff about Messiah, healing, liberating the captives, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. Today you are witnessing that fulfilled. He's telling them that he is the fulfillment of that. He is publicly 
unquestionably stating himself to be the one who would fulfill the promises of Isaiah 61. That he is the servant of the Lord who would come to heal the nation. And the people responded in wonder. Verse 22. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So first the people wonder at words the text describes as gracious. That's simply the word there, charis, grace. Jesus had just declared himself to be the fulfillment of all of their hopes, of all of their expectation, of all of their anticipation. As we might expect, however, this excitement or this wonder quickly gave way to skepticism. Because familiarity has a way of breeding contempt, doesn't it? It's always difficult for those who know a person best to see him as some sort of special authority because they understand him to simply be a person. People look at sports stars or celebrities or to a lesser extent politicians and they put them up on a pedestal and they think they're something special. They think, think they're something distant. But those who really know them know that they're just people. It's the same thing with pastors and missionaries and evangelists. We have this tendency to look at pastors, missionaries, evangelists and see them as something special, something um, uh, a bit higher or, or grander or greater. And, and we uh, would almost give some of them perhaps celebrity status and say, yeah, I, I know them or I took a selfie with them or whatever it might be. But, but those that know them best know that they're just people. There's times where my parents come and they visit us and they sit in these seats and they listen. And I, I have to assume that how my parents perceive my preaching is a little bit different from how many of you perceive my preaching. It's just the nature of the fact that they've seen me grow up. They know my faults. They know my weaknesses. They know my tendencies. And there's an extra hurdle to get over for a person who you know very well who's trying to speak authoritative to be that authoritative to you. And so Jesus is announcing himself to be Messiah. And those in the synagogue have watched him grow up. He may have very well been in that synagogue every Sabbath since five years old. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Didn't he grow up among us? Now by this point it would seem Jesus' adopted father has passed away. Lending all the more insight into just how well Jesus was known. His father was dead, but everyone still knew his father. They all knew Joseph before he died. So they'd all been around. Small community. Nazareth wasn't a big place. They knew Joseph. They knew Mary. They knew Jesus. They knew Jesus' half-brothers. They'd all grown up together. And it is this attitude which, in a manner of speaking, lends light to the context of what Jesus is going to say next. Verses 23 and 24. He said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Jesus begins on the local level. He tells them that they will surely say unto him, Physician, heal thyself. The idea of this proverb, physician, heal thyself, is calling upon the man who has healed others to do just as much 
for those close to him. They'll, the, the people of, of Israel will say when he's on the cross, he healed others, why won't he heal himself? He saved others, why won't he save himself? Probably the most direct reference to what Jesus Christ prophesies will be said today. But there's even something more local. That they're going to come and say, hey, you did all of this grand stuff everywhere else, do it here too. He's done wonderful works in Capernaum, so too he should do those wonderful works in Nazareth. They will want to see his miracles, but here's the problem. Jesus is not a miracle worker for hire. He's not just a guy going around doing a song and a dance for whoever wants to do the song and dance. He didn't put out his little violin case, open it up, do miracles, and hope that they threw coins in. He wasn't a a miracle worker for hire. His miracles were done under a specific condition. And the key that unlocks the miraculous power of God through Christ, then and now and always has been and is and was faith. And what he was telling them is that they were going to fall short of faith. Because a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. That... It's not that these people could not have faith, but because they were so familiar with Him, they were not going to be willing to look past their preconceived notions of what they wanted in Messiah and who Jesus was to accept Him as the Messiah. So they would not have faith. So He says, you're not going to see those things done here. You're not going to see the miracles here. Because I'm just Jesus Joseph's son to you. I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the Messiah to you. No prophet is accepted in his own country. The same thing Jesus would say in the other Gospels, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. The people were clearly struggling because they were so familiar with Jesus. And to this point, Jesus states that they will never experience the kind of blessings that Capernaum has because Capernaum was willing to accept him as Messiah. But Jesus continued warning. He goes well beyond just the local. He starts with Nazareth. You won't see it here. But then he begins to broaden his context of the full acceptance of him as Messiah. Touching on the fact that the whole nation will eventually reject him nationally. And he does so through two illustrations which Jesus gives. We read these illustrations beginning in verse 25. He says, but I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Jesus begins by saying, I tell you a truth. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you some insight here. People of Nazareth, those that think I'm just Joseph's son. Nazareth's response to his declaration of Messiahship will not be unique in that all of Israel as a whole, there will of course be the pockets of belief, but as a whole the entire nation will respond in the same manner, he says. And he gives an illustration here of the consistent trend in Israel's history to reject God and God's messengers. And he speaks first of Elias. Now, we already talked uh, about Isaiah, Esaias. Now we see Elias, and this would be in the Old Testament, Elijah. Say, 
Pastor, why are they different in the King James? Well, because in the Greek and Hebrew, we have uh, major differences. The languages are very different, so much so that the Greek and Hebrew actually don't even share all the same sounds. There are certain sounds in the Hebrew that don't exist in the Greek, and certain sounds in the Greek that simply don't exist in the Hebrew. And because these languages are so different, the Hebrew alphabet only having 22 letters, the Greek alphabet having 24 letters, the J sound actually doesn't exist in the Greek language. Kids, go through your alphabet. You won't hear a J. The J sound does not exist in the Greek alphabet. And so the name would have to be transliterated in from the Hebrew into the Greek in a way that fits Greek. Now at this point, the translators, the Greek translators have a the King James translators, excuse me, have a choice. In the Hebrew it's Elijah. In the Greek it's Elias. Are we going to write Elijah in our New Testament, which isn't going to reflect the Greek, but will help increase the understanding and connect the two characters? Or are we going to be more faithful to the Greek rendering at the expense, perhaps, of a little bit of comprehension? And in this choice, in the naming schemes, they chose to be loyal to the Greek, and reflect the Greek sound. So Elias, uh, Elijah becomes Elias. Elisha, we'll see in just a moment, becomes Elysius. Isaiah becomes Esaias. Joshua becomes Jesus. And we have all of these transliterations that the King James chose to maintain. And it may very well be, my, my theory, they chose to maintain it because they chose to use Jesus instead of Joshua for Jesus' name, because that's the name that has perpetuated through history, right? Jesus. And so in order to be consistent in their translational quality, they did the Greek for all of the names in the New Testament, instead of having Jesus still be Jesus, but yet all of the other names be brought back to their Hebrew. That would be inconsistent in translation. And the King James, as we look in the scriptures, they, they are, if nothing else, consistent in their translational quality. So that's my theory as to why they did it. Because they weren't about to knock Jesus' name back to Joshua. Because for 1,600 years before their translation came into existence, Jesus was the exalted name of, of our Savior. And they weren't going to inconsistently translate the other ones into Hebrew, but not Jesus' name. Just a theory. So, anyway, suffice it to note that we only need to educate ourselves a little bit to make these connections, right? Esaias, Isaiah, Elias, Elijah, Elysius, Elisha. So we have Elijah here, right? The days of Elias, the days of Elijah. And the account here that we're reading, or that Jesus speaks of, is an account in 1 Kings 17. Elijah appears unto the wicked king of the northern tribes of Israel named Ahab, and tells him that there would not be any rain in, in Israel until such time as Elijah gives the word. This was to be a testimony of Ahab's wickedness. And so Elijah says there will be no more rain, and then he just kind of disappears. And the rain stops. God directs him to flee to the east, where he is sustained by the brook Cherith, or Cherith, drinking of the brook and being fed by birds, by ravens. 
Eventually, however, this drought goes on for three and a half years. So that brook dries up. And when the brook dries up, the Bible says that God sent him to be sustained by a widow woman. And we'll pick up the account in 1 Kings 17, beginning in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came unto him, that would be Elijah, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a woman, a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, as the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me. And after, make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, And she, and he, and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. So, we have an instance here. Elijah is being fed by ravens and water at the brook. Then when that dries up, he is sent to a woman of, in the Old Testament, Zarephath, in the New Testament, Sarepta a place of Sidon, and there's this woman. And she is not a Jew. She is a Gentile woman. She's a Canaanitish woman. And he looks at her and he says, would you go and get me some water? So she's going to get him some water. And he says, oh, and a little bit of meal too. She says, look, I've only got enough left for my son and me. I was just about ready to make it, and then we're just going to die. We're going to eat one last meal, and then we'll, we'll die. And he says, if you'll make it for me first, make a meal for me, Then for you, by the word of the Lord, the meal and the oil will not run out until the day that the famine's over. Now, she has a choice to make at this point, right? Do I make the last meal for myself and then try to figure it out? Or do I believe the man of God? And it's quite clear from the passage she understood he was a prophet of God. But she's not a Jew. She has no investment in this God. Does she listen to the prophet of God? And that's why he's not asking her to make him a meal first because he's selfish. This is a faith choice. Will you do this for me? If he said, if you make it for you and then go back and you'll find more for me, well then the faith has doesn't have to be there. But if she invests all that she has left in the man of God, she is putting her full faith in the fact that what he says will come to pass. Will you do this? And she does it. And until the famine is over, the word tells us, the meal never expended and the cruise of oil never dried out or emptied through a three and a half year drought. And this is a wonderful story of God's blessing of faith. But what Jesus highlights in this story is an inconvenient truth for the Jewish nation. 
that the widow unto whom Elijah was sent was not a widow of Israel or a widow of Judah. The city in which Elijah was sent was in the Greek called Sarepta, in the Hebrew called Zarephath. It was a city in the region of Sidon, in the Greek Zidon, or excuse me, Sidon in the Hebrew, in the Greek, Zidon in the Hebrew. Obadiah refers to Zarephath as a Canaanitish town, somewhere between Tyre and Sidon, well into the region of Phoenicia, well outside the region that Israel claimed to be theirs. And the point is this. When God was looking for someone to sustain his prophet, someone with enough faith to, to obey the word of the Lord, to honor God at the voice of the prophet Elijah, he was not sent to a widow woman in Israel. He was not sent to the, the Levitical priests. He was sent to a widow woman of Canaanitish origin. God had to go outside of Israel. He had to go to the Gentile world to find a woman willing to honor and obey the word of God through the prophet of God. And that is what Jesus is highlighting here. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He's speaking of Nazareth immediately at the, at the moment. Capernaum will get more than Nazareth. But you know what he's also saying? Israel. God has had to send his prophets outside of Israel to be cared for before. To be heard before. Jesus then immediately goes to a second illustration, verse 27. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias. Um, Nope, nope, excuse me. Uh, Verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elysius, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Here again, we see that change. I mentioned it before. Elysius would be Elisha. So that would be the, the disciple of Elijah, the one who would come after Elijah. And the account here is of Naaman the Syrian. Naaman was the captain of the host of the armies of Syria. Effectively, he was their military general, a man of great power. And he struck with leprosy. Leprosy is uncurable. It eats you away till you die. And there's a little Israeli maid who served Naaman's household, likely had been captured in one of the many Syrian conquests of Israel's lands. And he told them of a prophet of God. And she said, if only my master could get to the prophet of God, for he could heal him. Naaman is intrigued. So he goes to his king. He asks for permission to go to find this prophet of God. The king says, we'll make it official. We'll make it an official task. So Naaman is sent in the name of his king to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel, and and, and he presents himself and says, I have come to be healed of my leprosy. And the king of Israel rents his clothes and says, this is just an act of war. I can't cure leprosy. How, How are we supposed to do this? The king of Syria is looking for a means by which to fight us, to destroy us. And so he's sending his general down to us to receive a miracle. And if we can't miraculously cure his leprosy, which doesn't happen, he's going to fight us. So the king is distraught and Elisha hears about it. And so Elisha tells the king of Israel, send Naaman to me. And now we pick up reading in 2 Kings 5, beginning in verse 9. 
So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, go and wash in Jordan seven times. Notice Elisha didn't even go out there. Elisha didn't even go out himself. He sends a messenger. Go and wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth. He was angry and went away and said, behold, Yes, okay. Sorry. Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hands over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Elijah won't even go out, right? So this is a big, proud man, the captain of the host in Syria. And he comes to the king and he says, heal me. The king says, I don't know what to do. And then Elijah sends word, send him to me. So big, proud Naaman comes to Elisha, and he doesn't even get Elisha. He gets Elisha's messenger. And the messenger says, go dip in the Jordan seven times and you're good to go. And now Naaman's upset. I thought he was going to come out and do a dance and call upon the name of his God and clap his hands together and heal the leper. He wanted to see a ceremony. He wanted to see something big here. No. And then he says, well, what about the Jordan? The Jordan's nowhere near as good a river as the rivers in Damascus. I could just go bathe in one. If I want to bathe in one, I at least want to bathe in one that's not going to give me some bacteria. And then the servant has to come to him and very humbly say, my father, he's not asking you to do anything special, but if he had asked you to climb to the highest peak or asked you to give all of your money to be healed, you'd have done it. So why is it so hard for you to do it if it's just a little bit? Have you ever known someone with salvation that's that way? It's too simple they, they reject you because they say, no, that's too easy. It can't be that easy. And you lament and you say, look, if it were something hard, like so many of the other religions ask you to do, if they ask you to blow yourself up, or if, if your God asked you to, to give of all your money, or if your God asked you to crawl on your knees up the stairs and do penance, or if your God asked you to spend your entire life in solitude looking for transcendence, then you do it. Why can't you just accept the gift? It's so easy that people get hung up on it. And that was Naaman. And the servant says, look, just because it's easy doesn't mean it won't work. You came here. He told you this will work. What do you have to lose? So he goes and he dips seven times in the Jordan and he comes out clean. And as Jesus speaks to these Nazarenes in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, He states that at that same time that Naaman is being healed of his leprosy, there were many lepers of Israel. But not one of those Israeli lepers were healed. Not one of them had the initiative and the faith to go to Elijah and ask Elijah for a work of God. To listen to the prophet of God. Because the prophet of God, Elijah and Elisha, had both been outcasts of their own people. Because a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. 
Do you see the condemnation that Jesus is bringing to them? Not condemning them to hell, just the condemnation of their actions. You don't have enough faith, but the Gentiles have always had enough faith. And that's been God's M.O. Modus operandi. That's how God has operated. He goes to Israel. He sends his prophet to Israel. They don't listen to him. The Gentiles have enough faith and they, they receive the benefit. Naaman, this woman of Zarephath. Notice how the people respond to his words. <laughs> and they, and all they in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Jesus says, look, prophet's not without honor in his own country. You're going to reject me. And they get angry at him. <laughs> and they reject him. It's a, totally a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's so ironic. Why were they so angry? Consider the context closely. Even in the days of Elisha and Elisha. Elijah, Elisha. There we go. The people of Israel took for granted the prophet of God. Gave him no honor. And God saw fit to send his people, his prophets, to those who would receive him. And Jesus has just announced that he is Messiah. He has declared the coming of the kingdom. And he is stating that their response was entirely consistent with their father's. That he has just said the kingdom has come. And he's telling them, but you don't, you're not going to want it. Because you're not going to want me. And this is a, quite a warning. That if their response to the prophet of God was consistent with their father's response to the prophets of God. They should not be surprised when God responds to their faithlessness in the same way he responded to the faithlessness of the generations gone by. In other words, they should not be surprised if the prophet of God, the Messiah of God, is sent to the Gentiles. Just as Elijah was sent to the Gentile world. Just as Elisha was sent to the Gentile world. He says, don't be surprised if it happens to you because you're looking to reject me the same way they did. And that's the prophecy. That the Gentiles will receive that which the Jews will not when it comes to Messiah. Now for a Jew at the time of Christ, expecting Messiah to come, they were expecting him to come and destroy the Gentile world. Not to save it. To judge the Gentile world. To set up an exclusively Jewish state that would last forever. So these words, these words of Messiah saying, I'm Messiah and by the way you're going to reject me and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Them's fighting words. So they interpreted his words as blasphemy. And notice what they sought to do about it. 29 and 30. They rose up, thrust him out of the city, and led him under the brow of a hill whereupon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Bethlehem, or excuse me, Nazareth was set up on a hill. You can still see that today if you go to Israel. Missionary Bergman's there right now. I'll be praying for him. He's over there in Israel. And uh, he's got a picture of him hanging on that cliff on his Facebook page where they, threw, where they wanted to throw Jesus over. And as they sought to do so, the Bible doesn't really give us much. All it says is that he passed through the midst of them and went his way. Some believe this to be miraculous. I mean, how does an entire mob lose track of a guy? Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Either way, we know that God gave his angel charge over them so that he would not be hurt, right? So one way or another, it's not his time to die. They're not about to be able to cast him over the cliff. He passes through the midst of them. He goes on. He, he, he goes his way. And he leaves the city of those who have rejected him with no miracles. 
And Nazareth, according to the record of the word of God, would never receive a miracle in their city. The very hometown of Jesus would never receive a miracle because this is how they responded to their Messiah. As we apply today, I mentioned early on, we're going to do this in two parts. The first part will be practical. Today is going to be practical application to the exposition of the text. Next week, we're going to get theological. And I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into why Jesus stopped halfway through verse 2. You won't want to miss it. It's going to be very interesting, very enjoyable. It's one of my favorite things to study. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we hold to this concept of dispensationalism that we do. It's going to teach us about what God's plan was for the church and God's plan is yet for Israel. It's going to give us perspective. We'll talk about that next week. For this morning, however, a few practical points to consider from the text. First, simply put, Jesus came to heal us. Jesus came to heal us. This is the gospel. Jesus is Messiah. We remember the words of Jesus from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and then the first half of verse 2. And we find that Jesus came... To change the world from the inside out. He didn't just come for moral reform. He came to change us from the inside out. And he did so when he died on the cross and rose in victory over sin in the grave. You know, the world is full of solutions for the sin problem that is all around us. We're reading the news right now as uh, the world burns, Right? Charlotte is a mess. Chelsea just had bombings. France is a mess from months of terrorist attacks. People are tearing each other apart. Division. Anger. And the world says if we could just beat poverty, then crime would go away. If we could just have equality, right? That's the problem here. That's why people are rioting. Rioting for equality. Rioting for justice. It's not justice. The world says if we could just get enough education, crime would go away. The problem is an uneducated populace. The world envisions a day when humanity has moved beyond wars, beyond greed and evil and destruction. You know, there's even a very popular uh, television and movie series that's based upon the entire concept, this optimistic view of mankind where we're post-war, post-civil war, right? It's called Star Trek. That's the entire premise of Star Trek. The world has come to a place of abject peace. And because we're at peace, we're finally able to come together and reach out to the stars. The Tower of Babel is all that is, right? The world was as one. And they built a tower and said, we will be as gods. Sorry if I ruined your childhood. But that's the point. That's the concept, right? But the world will never move past crime. We will never have a post-war world until Christ comes because men don't rule their own hearts. Sin rules men's hearts. And because sin rules the hearts of men, evil will persist until sin is dealt with. And there was a time when sin ruled the heart of every single person in this room. But then for many of you, something happened. You heard about a man in whose heart sin did not rule. A sinless man. Never ruled by sin. You heard that he came to earth as a man, but that he is God. 
You heard that he lived a perfect life. You heard that he gave up his life to die a cruel death, not for his own sin, but that as he hung on the cross, God the Father poured your sin on him. My sin on him. You heard that he has borne our sin, that he has carried our sorrows. You heard that with his pain, that with his wounds, that with his bruising, that with his suffering, you were healed. You heard that Jesus was put into the grave and that he lay there dead for three days. You heard, however, that on the third day the tomb was empty, that he rose again. You heard that he was seen by Peter, that he was seen then by the twelve, that he was seen by over 500 at one time in Galilee. And you put your faith in that man and you put your faith in his message. A message that said that if you will understand and believe that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself and that by nature and justice you are condemned to a sinner's hell as punishment, just punishment for your sin. But that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and that if you will believe on his name, who he said he is, what he said he did and what he says he will do for you one day, then you will be forgiven of your sin and given eternal life. That you will be removed from the path of judgment and made a child of the living God. And when that happened to you, things changed. Sin no longer ruled your heart. The world looked different to you. You didn't think the way you once thought. You didn't want the things you once wanted. It was like the blinders fell off of your eyes. You understood things in a new way. You wanted to serve God, not just yourself. You cared what God thought more than what others thought of you. Your guilt went away. Your shame over sin disappeared. You began to love people like you'd never loved them before. You began to forgive like you had been forgiven. Your spirit came alive and you began to heal from the inside out. And if you've experienced this, then you know what Jesus came to do. You know the fullest realization of what Isaiah 61, 1 and the first half of 2 says to us, that He came to heal, to bind, To bring liberty to the captives. And we've experienced that. If you've never experienced this, then you don't even know what you're missing out on. And you can have all of that. If you will. If you would have all of that. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Jesus came to heal us. And I continue into our second point. I love to dwell there. It's a blessed point to think about. But for those of you who have indeed been healed by the grace of God through salvation, I want to remind you of something that I think we all need to be careful about. Remember that familiarity can breed apathy. As I talked about salvation, as I even wrote all of that in my notes a couple of weeks ago when I was writing this sermon, there's a little part of me that says, I've lost a little bit of that excitement. I've lost a little bit of the blessedness that I felt at that time when I was excited about the Lord, where my sins were forgiven, where I didn't care about me anymore because it was all about Him. Familiarity has a way of taking the mystery and excitement out of things. 
a husband and wife, they spend years together and become intimately familiar with one another and they have to fight to maintain that excitement in their marriage. A car, when first purchased, what do you do with it? If it's a brand new car, you park all the way about half a mile away from the store where no one will ding it, no one will touch it. But six months later, year later, still a nice car, right? But convenience wins out, right? You got a few dings, you get a few scratches, but hey, I don't have to walk half a mile to get to the store anymore. That familiarity breeds with it less excitement. And it can be that way spiritually as well, Christian. We live this life, we become familiar with God and the Bible, we know it, we, with life as it is lived, we, 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 we create habits in our lives that are good and righteous and we can kind of get on autopilot and we get tired and, and, and we lose a little bit of that wonder and that excitement of the things of the Lord. We begin living a moral life that God has called us to live and, and in a culture like ours where, where simply living in integrity and obedience solves about 90% of the problems that society fights with. We're not going to be gambling, and we're not going to be drinking, and we're not going to be on drugs, and we're not going to be in in uh, all-consuming debt, and we're going to um, be kind to our neighbors, and, and they're going to most likely be kind to us in turn. About 90% of the problems that most people fight with will, will be taken care of just because we're now moral. So things become mundane. That 90% becomes habit and that 10%, that part where you up the ante, where you love your neighbor as yourself, where you forgive those that hate you, where you love, where, where, where you're, you're, you're kind, that, that extra 10% of, of going just beyond moral living and really living the, the, the spirit filled, Christ filled day in and day out, trusting God for our needs, um, uh, deep prayer and intimacy with the Lord, that, that, that part can just kind of fall away. And we get on moral autopilot. We can lose the wonder of answered prayer. Even the conviction to take our things to the Lord in prayer. We can lose the excitement of learning of Christ and His Word. Maybe that there isn't even all that much more that we can learn anymore. We can lose the love for serving others or simply stop and kind of enfold into ourselves. We can lose the desire to tell others of Christ, not wanting the inconvenience or the annoyance or or not wanting others to think of us a, a, a way that we wouldn't want them to fear of rejection, fear of uh, being laughed at. We lose the desire to be among God's people, to go to church. Church becomes mundane. What used to be exciting is no longer such. It's, it's routine, it's habit. Uh, and it becomes less important to us. And soon, just like any relationship, we can stagnate. Israel had stagnated. Even though they had seen no profit for nearly half of a millennia. The people picked up where their fathers had left off in the days of Elijah and Elisha. They were so busy with their service to God that they forgot to listen to God. They were so busy with their self-righteousness that they failed to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And so when Messiah came, they missed it because their familiarity had bred apathy. And may it never be said of us. May we never fail to be renewed in our love for God our determination to obey obey our repentant heart towards sin. May we never take for granted the healing that we have received in Christ. May we never become so self-righteous that we spend our time comparing ourselves to the merits of a sinful world rather than to the merits of the living Lord. You can sit here all day, look at the world around you and say, well, I'm better than them. 
so I must be doing okay. But when you sit here and you look at the merits of the Lord and you compare yourself, all of a sudden you look pretty dim, don't you? And what is our tendency to do? Close this and look around when we really should be looking in this and stop looking around. I think all of us could probably look back, maybe not, maybe there's a few in here who've kept the fire, but I think most of us could probably look back on a time in our lives where we were more excited. Where, where we felt as though we were closer. Can you trace the steps of how you got from there to here? Is there anything in you that wants the the coals, the embers that are glowing to be blown back into a flame, a raging fire for the Lord? Have you never even felt that? Have you never given yourself to the Lord enough in faith and in trust to feel that overwhelming desire to serve Him at any cost? Once we were excited to read our Bibles, now we only do it if there's time. Once we were excited to hide God's Word in our hearts, now we can go for a day without God's Word even crossing our minds. There was a time where we got down on our knees and we spent true time in prayer. Now our talks fall short. They're selfish. They're distracted. And if this sounds strangely familiar, it's because your pastor's not exempt from this either. These concerns are the overflow of my own heart, my own failings, my own experiences. We've all been there. We all fall short when we allow our familiarity to strip the excitement of what we have in Christ and replace it with spiritual apathy. Familiarity can breed apathy, faithlessness. Let's be careful. Third and final point. God's blessing is always upon those who act in faith. And faith is always worth it. We can talk Old Testament. We can talk New Testament. We can talk early church. We can talk modern church. We can talk Jew. We can talk Gentile. What we know from Scripture is that God has always responded to faith. The widow of Zarephath was a Canaanitish woman, yet her faith saved her household. Naaman was a Syrian general, general, yet his faith made him whole. All throughout Scripture, Jesus went to the Jews, and yet he was always found of all those who had faith to receive him. And in every case, to whatever degree a man or a woman showed himself willing to step out in faith and trust God's word, God was found of them, and I guarantee you none of them have ever regretted it. Now that doesn't mean the road was always easy, but it always has been blessed. God doesn't reward his faithful followers every time with wealth and health and ease, but God rewards each man in accordance with the promises of his word. Pastor, how do you know this? Well, because I've experienced it. And I think if we had a testimony time, we could have people stand up and give their testimonies of how God has rewarded faith and how faith has never been left wanting. By the testimony of scriptures, faith is always worth it. I wish we could go to Hebrews 11. If you want to keep thinking about this today, go to Hebrews 11. Read that chapter on faith. Read of Rahab. Read of Ruth. Read of Esther. If you want to look at some women of faith. Read of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jonathan, Samuel, David. Faith is always worth it. 
But ladies and gentlemen, the only way you're ever going to understand that, and this is the interesting thing about faith, Naaman never could have understood the power of faith until he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. The widow of Zarephath never could have understood the power of faith until she made the meal for Elijah. You will never, ever be able to understand the power of faith, truly understand it until you've experienced it, and you will never experience it until you live it. May God help us to do so as we go our way this week. Let's pray.